All right, tonight's psalm is 112, but if you'd actually turn to Psalm 111. I don't know if you remember last year if you were Zooming with us, but I actually taught Psalm 111 last year through the Zoom. And I regret now not doing Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 together because you'll see why they go together tonight. So Psalm 111 we looked at last year, and Psalm 112 that we will look at tonight are twin psalms. They're twins. They're not identical twins. They're fraternal twins. (laughs) Psalms 111 is about the works of God, and we studied that last year. And tonight, Psalm 112 is about the works of a godly man, so they go hand in hand. You notice that each of them have 10 verses, the same amount of verses, and each of them is an acrostic. Now, I don't know if we've talked about acrostics. Psalm 119 has 22 sections. Each section begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, if you take away the first line, the praise the Lord sign, there are 22 lines, 22 lines, and each one begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So what that tells you right there is probably every Jewish boy and girl would have these two memorized, so they were acrostics. Psalms 111, Psalms 112, and Psalms 113 are often called the Hallelujah Psalms because they begin with praise the Lord, or in Hebrew, hallelujah. So I want to read Psalms 111 because you'll see the same words, the same attributes in Psalm 111 that you see in Psalm 112. So let's begin with Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright and in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders, works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Notice in Psalm 111, we talked about this last year, but I'll just review quickly. Notice verse 2. It says, uh, it's all about God's works. It says, great are the works of the Lord. Go to verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his works. Verse 3, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works. Verse 7, the works of his hands are faithful and just. Five times in ten verses he talks about God's works. And then you have attribute after attribute after attribute. We talked about two of them on Sunday in Psalm 139, but here... In verse 1, he says that God is in the, in the company of the upright of the congregation. That's the same as we talked about Sunday, the omnipresence of God. God is with us everywhere. So that would be the first attribute. The second attribute would be ver- verse 2. It says, great are the works of the Lord. You can't even comprehend. So I would put that under the incomprehensibility of God. His works are so great, we can't even comprehend them. Number 3, it says, full of splendor and majesty is his work. I would put that as God's wisdom, his wisdom to every, all his creation. Verse 3 simply mentions his righteousness endures forever. So that's an attribute of God is righteousness. That's the fourth one. 
And then verse 4 mentions God's grace and mercy. So that's attribute 5 and 6. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Then attribute number 7, it says he provides food for those who fear him. That's the goodness of God. God's even good to the wicked. He gives them rain to grow the crops, but he gives special food for those who fear him. The eighth attribute is God's sovereignty. In verse 5, it says he remembers his covenant forever. So that covenant is a promised covenant, and God controls the affairs of the world. Verse 6 says he has shown them the power of his works. So that's attribute number 9, the omnipotence of God or the power of God. And then attributes 10 and 11 are in verse 7. His hands are faithful and just. The faithfulness of God and the justice of God. Attributes 10 and 11. And then verse 8 says, They are established forever and ever. That teaches us that God was in the beginning and he'll be in the end. He's eternal, eternality of God. God always was, is, and will be. Then the 13th attribute is in verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. That speaks of the love of God. God's love is attribute number 13. And then number 14, it says in verse 9, holy and awesome is his name. That speaks of the holiness of God. And maybe you could find some more in there. It mentions majesty. I didn't really talk about that one, but at least 14 attributes of God in Psalms 111. So why is that important? Why why did I read Psalm 111? Well, when we talk about the attributes of God, we talked about it Sunday. We listed two of them on Sunday. We'll talk about more of them this Sunday. There are two types of attributes of God. There's incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. What are those? Well, incommunicable attributes are the attributes that we don't have and we can't have that show that God is vastly different than us. So Sunday we talked about the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God, um, his eternality, um, the omnipotence, things like that. Man cannot share in those attributes, okay? So those are called incommunicable attributes. But then there are communicable attributes, such as love, grace, mercy, goodness, holiness, righteousness, and we can share in those. Doesn't mean we're perfect like God, but God is love, right? So when you come to Jesus Christ, you're expected to love sinners, to love people. So when God made man in his own image, man lost the moral qualities when Adam sinned, but God God has brought redemption. So as we come to Christ and we grow in Christ, We can learn these attributes. We can grow in them. And that's what Psalm 112 is about, the works of a godly man. And you will see that some of those attributes in Psalm 111 about the works of God, we can have in Psalm 112 the works of a godly man. So I read, that's why I read Psalm 111. Now let's read Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted with honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for another chance to open up the perfect word of God and especially the poetry book of Psalms. So open our eyes that we can see wonderful things in your law. May we leave here tonight knowing more of you, God, and your attributes and the ones that we can share that would transform and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a wisdom psalm. It's a wisdom psalm, okay? And most commentators would say there are eight wisdom psalms, Psalm 36, 37, 49, 73, 112 here, 127, 128, and 133. Now, I would also throw Psalm 1 in there and Psalm 119, but most commentators would say those are the main eight wisdom psalms. What is a wisdom psalm? It just gives merits of wisdom for living a godly life. That's all this psalm is about. Notice there is no superscription. Do you see that? This is the first one of the 11 that we've covered that did not have a superscription. So these are often called orphan psalms. There's 36 of them. 114 of the 150 psalms have superscriptions. This one does not. So what's that mean? We don't know who wrote it. <laughs> we don't know who wrote it. So it's an orphan psalm. Um, and we don't know any title or any history about it. Most commentators believe this is a post-exilic psalm written after the Babylonian captivity came back, but they really can't prove that. We have an outline. I hope you have an uh, outline in the back. Three points. The character of a God-centered life, verse 1. The consequences, or you could say the characteristics of a God-centered life, verses 2 to 9. And the contrast with the God-centered life, verse 10. So let's look at point one, the character of the God-centered life. There is a lot packed in, in one verse right there. Okay, one verse, and he has three points there. He praises the Lord, he fears the Lord, and he delights in his commandments. So the first characteristic of a God-centered life is a person who practices praising the Lord. We've talked a lot about this in our series in Psalms. The psalmist begins with a call to the congregation by saying, praise the Lord or hallelujah. Most commentators would say that at the end of each of the 22 lines that they would read in Hebrew, the congregation would shout out, hallelujah, hallelujah, okay? So they begins here with saying hallelujah in Hebrew or praise the Lord. The psalmist wants the children of Israel and wants us today to praise the Lord. What does praise the Lord mean? It means ascribing to God for who he is by nature is. It's a person who's satisfied with the Lord, so he gives praise to the Lord. People who are not happy in the Lord, people who are not satisfied in the Lord, they don't come to church. They don't come with joy, entering his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. They don't give thanks. But we're to enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise the Lord. There are actually 10 psalms out of the 150 that begin with the Hebrew word hallelujah. Psalms 106, Psalms 111, which we read, Psalms 112, which we read. The next one, Psalm 113. So Psalm 111, 12, and 13 are called the hallelujah psalms. And then there's Psalm 135. And then the last five, Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, and Psalm 150, those are called the halal psalms. And someone may ask, what about Psalm 117? That begins with praise the Lord. That actually uses a different Hebrew word, okay? It's also interesting that Psalms 115, 16, and 117 end with praise the Lord, okay? So in the New Testament, the, the equivalent word for praise the Lord is alleluia, and it's only found in Revelation 19 where it's listed four times, okay? So the psalmist begins with a shout, praise the Lord, or alleluia, before the psalmist will list the great things of God and the characteristics that we can have. Number two, 
He says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The second characteristic of a God-centered person as a God-centered life is a person who fears the Lord. If you remember our study in Psalms 32, we went through the 25 Beatitudes, okay? And this is one of them. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Psalms 128 also has this Beatitude. Psalms 128, which we'll read in a little bit, says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Here it says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. But notice how Psalm 111 ended. Everybody look back at Psalm 111, verse 10. What's it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. So notice that the psalmist ends verse 111 with fearing the Lord, and then he begins Psalm 112 with fearing the Lord. And I believe, and I said this last year, when someone sends you a prayer request on a text, do you guys do PTL? Everybody put the acronym PTL? Someone calls you and says, so-and-so got healed or so-and-so's out of the hospital. You text back PTL, right? Praise the Lord. Do you do that? Well, I think PTL and FTL go together because the person that praises the Lord will be a person that fears the Lord. So a lot of us praise the Lord. You know, a lot of people praise the Lord, but you see a lot of people going to church, a lot of charismatic or Pentecostal churches. I see this overseas, and they can jump, shout, and dance down the aisle and praise the Lord. But do they fear the Lord? Do they live holy lives? They go together. God deserves our praise because of what he does for those who fear him. And the Psalms teaches that they go together. They're inseparable. The fear of the Lord is a foundational principle for biblical wisdom. Um, If you want to get a book on it, Pastor Lance has a book on it. It's a little booklet. It's $5. You can buy it in the tape library if you want to study all about the fear of the Lord. Unbelievers don't have the fear of the Lord. They can't have this wisdom But believers begin their walk with God in reverential fear and submissive fear of the Lord. In the five poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, only Song of Solomon doesn't have verses about the fear of the Lord. Job 28.28 says, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Psalms 110 There are 19 verses in Psalms about fear of the Lord, by the way. Psalms 110, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs has 19 verses about fearing the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7 is the key verse of the whole book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And of course, you probably know the book of Ecclesiastes finishes with this verse, 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Charles Spurgeon said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The godly man praises the Lord. The godly man fears the Lord. And number three, the last part of verse 1 who greatly delights in his commandment. If you praise the Lord, you fear the Lord, you're going to delight in the word of God. You're going to delight in obeying the word of God because they all go together. So the third characteristic of a God-centered life is a person who delights in God's commandments. Remember, this is a wisdom psalm. So a godly man pursues wisdom by being in the word of God, by reading it, by studying it, by memorizing it, by meditating upon it. You know, it says greatly delights in his commandments. It just doesn't say he delights in his commandments. You know, Psalms 1, verse 2, we always go back to the first psalm, right? Because that's a wisdom psalm. 
Psalm 1 verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So Psalms 1-2 says his delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalms 112-1 says greatly he delights in the law of the commandments. The New Testament echoes this. 1 John 5-3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let me illustrate just how powerful the word of God is. We think it's our words that save somebody, right? When I went to India, I worked for an Indian pastor, uh, Reverend Peter Kashung, for about six years. And so when he went there, you know, I didn't work for a missionary board. I didn't work for a white missionary. I worked for an Indian missionary. And if you know anything about Indians, they have a lot of people at their house. They have nephews and aunts and nieces. They have an extended family. And so they're always having people come to their house in Siliguri because originally they're from Manipur or Nagaland, and we're in West Bengal. So one day, this nephew shows up of the Reverend Kashung. I think he was about 20. His name was Chuba. And he's been through drugs, he's been through rebellion, he's been through trouble, so much so that his parents decided to send him to Siliguri and hand him off to Reverend Kashung, hoping he could straight him out. Well, it didn't go too well, so they got tired of him, so they came up with the great idea, send him to Bruce, the white missionary. <laughs> so he comes to our house, and he's not a happy camper. So what am I going to tell him? I'm going to preach at him, I'm going to rebuke at him, I'm going to yell at him, I'm going to counsel him. He doesn't want to be there. So I asked him, you don't want to be here, do you? And he flat out said no. So I broke the ice, and of course, everybody in India likes football, soccer, Manchester United, Chelsea. So we started talking football. And of course, you give people tea and a biscuit in India. So we broke the ice and just tried to make friends and talk to him. But before he left, I asked him, will you do me one favor and promise me one thing? And I gave him a new English Bible, and I said, I want you to read chapter 1 of John tomorrow on Tuesday, chapter 2 on Wednesday, chapter 3. I want you to read the next seven chapters in the next seven days. And then you come back here next Monday at 4 o'clock is our appointed time to meet. That's all I'm asking. He said, fine, and left. I didn't know if he would do it. I didn't know what he would do because they were ready to just kick him out. Well, he got saved within a couple weeks. I don't remember how exactly it was. It was the first week or the second week. But it wasn't my words that saved him. It was the book of John. It was John 3, John 5, John 10, John 14, John 21. And I had the joy of baptizing him. And even today, he still is doing ministry as an evangelist in the church. That's the power of God's word. Now, I know, you know, we have Gideon Bibles in hotels, and we like to pass out Bibles. And I know you have unsaved relatives you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking because if you could give them the word of God and they would read it, it might break that stone cold heart, right? Now, they don't want to read it most often, but that was one success story. He delighted in God's word. He read God's word and the Holy Spirit broke that stone cold heart through the word of God. So the godly man or the godly woman is going to praise the Lord. They're going to fear the Lord and they're going to delight in God's word. Let's look at point two, the consequences of a God-centered life. And we here have verses 2 to 9. And you could list, I have six consequences here. I could have made it 7, 8, or 9, but I'm going to go with 6, okay? So number 1, there's a generational effect, verse 2. We talk a lot about this at Christ Community Church. It's a great verse. It says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. There's a blessing for fearing the Lord for being in God's word, for obeying God's word. And this is the first generational, first effect, first consequence, and maybe the most important. 
that the godly man or godly woman is going to leave uh, an effect through their family. I think it was, what, three months ago, John Aker was here, right? And remember what he talked about? That he was preaching about leaving a powerful legacy through our children, right? So the influence of a godly man is felt for generation after generation after generation if it's passed down. When it says his offspring will be mighty, it literally means they will be outstanding. They'll be outstanding in the Lord. They will be heroes in the Lord. And Psalms 112 is a wisdom psalm. Now turn to Psalm 128. That's another wisdom psalm. And I almost did this psalm this year, but I held off, but we may do it next year. Psalms 128. It says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So the blessed family there, two times it talks about fearing the Lord, right? Okay, generation after generation. You know, I love to study the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. So, you know, you had Saul, a bad king. Then you had David, a good king. Then you had Solomon, who started good. And then Solomon's son began a series of kings, 20 of them. 20 kings started with Roboam, right? And that, those 20 kings lasted about 345 years. 20 kings from the southern kingdom. I'm only talking about the southern kingdom. All the kings in the northern kingdom were bad. So there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom. How many of them do you think left a godly son? How many of them were godly who actually left a godly son? Any idea out of 20? How many? How many? Four. There were actually six kings that were good. Now, they may not have finished quite good like Amay has, but there were six kings who were good, but only four of them left a son who was godly when you look at the chart. Not even Hezekiah, not even Joash, who were great kings, who led great revivals, left a godly son. In fact, Hezekiah had the worst son, Manasseh. 55 years he ruled. Now, he got saved in the end, it looks like it, when you read uh, Chronicles. But only four kings out of 20 left a godly son. So that's a what, 20%? So I remember reading a book by Vody Bachman. Everybody know Vody Bachman? He's just written a new book on the critical CRT. Um, but he wrote a book about the family many years ago. And I think we studied here in the men's ministry here at Christ Community Church. And he mentioned that I believe it was 79% of the high school students when they get to college, they stop following the Lord. They walk away from the faith. So that's about the same as the kings of Israel. 80%, give or take a percent. So that's not very good, is it? So it just shows you how much time, how much effort families, parents, mothers, fathers have to put with our kids so that they can be mighty in the land and that they can be upright so they can be blessed. So the kings of Israel and our teenagers today it's sad that so many of them are not following the Lord. But there's a generational effect for those who fear the Lord, who praise the Lord, who delight in the commandments and the word of God. Number two, I call this the gladness effect or the happy effect. Verse 3a says, wealth and riches are in his house. Now, we're not teaching prosperity theology tonight. I'm not Benny Hinn here, okay? Um, but we know there are some rich people in the Bible. Abraham, Job, Solomon were wealthy. 
But most of the Jews were agricultural farmers who would live on maybe one denarius a day. Most of the Jews were simple farmers, and they relied on the rain. If it didn't rain and there was a famine, they could starve. Not, most of them were not rich. So this is not speaking guaranteeing riches. Remember, these are principles, not promises. Principles. If you fear the Lord, if you praise the Lord, if you delight in God's word, the principle is that you are going to have a blessed life. And one of those blessings is that you'll be favored by God materially and spiritually. I think most Americans could say that, right? So financial riches, spiritual riches are in view here. The Lord, the Lord delights to bless those who bless him. It's a, I mentioned it's, it's not a promise, but a principle of abundance, contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction with what God has blessed you in the life that you have when you follow the godly path. I think of the example in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Corinthians, Paul says this about them. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, in their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So it's a poor church. The Corinthian church, Paul says, you are a poor church, yet they raised up a great offering for Paul. Okay, so there's a glad effect there. Let's move on to number three. There's a godly effect. It simply says, and his righteousness endures forever. Didn't it say that in Psalms 111, verse 3? And it says of God, and his righteousness endures forever, talking about God. And here, in verse 3 of Psalms 112, it says, and his righteousness endures forever. It's talking about the godly man, the godly woman. The word righteousness is in verse 3, in verse 9, and the word righteous is in verse 4 and verse 6. So at least four times in this 10 verses, you have the word righteous or righteousness. So these, there is a spiritual blessing upon a godly man. When he receives Jesus Christ, we call that justification. I think I've been through this before, but I'll do it again. Um, justification, sanctification, glorification. Every Christian needs to know those three terms, okay? So when you come to Jesus Christ, you are justified by Jesus Christ, and you can stand before God. You're here, God's here, and you can stand before God. The reason you can stand before God is because Jesus Christ has covered you with his righteousness, with his blood. And so that means that when you're justified, you are free from the penalty of sin. You no longer will go to hell. You will no longer be under the penalty of sin. Then begins a life of sanctification, a lifelong life of sanctification. You begin to practice righteousness. You learn righteousness, and you grow in righteousness, and you sin less and less as you grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ and obedience. That is called, uh, uh, you're free from the power of sin. So when you're sanctified, you sin less. Sin does not control you. God controls you. The old is gone. The new has come. And some great and glorious day, hopefully tonight, hopefully for the Christians in Afghanistan tonight, Jesus Christ will come, and we will go home, and we will be glorified, and we will be fully, completely righteous. We'll see him as he is. So God is righteous, and his righteousness endures forever to the person who praises the Lord, fears the Lord, delights in the word of God. The New Testament equivalent, and I mentioned this in other Psalms, my favorite verse in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, we, that's us, might become the righteousness of God. 
So that's one of the great attributes that we have. God is righteous and holy, but we can be righteous in the sight of God, free from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Let's go to number four, the gracious effect. It says in verse four, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Verse four is the most difficult verse to uh, interpret. Commentators argue about this verse. Some say it's about God. Some say it's about the godly man. But I believe it just simply means that the godly man will be a light in a dark world, in a rising world. He's that kind of person, okay? You will know that man. He has characteristics of, you know, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 2, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. He's going to be a gracious and kind person. I mentioned that Psalm 111 listed 14 attributes of God, and this verse right here has three of them that man can have or has when you have Jesus Christ. But remember back in Exodus 34, God's talking And God passed by Moses, and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That verse, Exodus 34, 6, actually mentions four or five attributes of God. But here we have three. We have grace. What's grace? You know, God's riches at Christ's expense is the acronym. But the grace, the man that gets God's grace, he, he gives grace. He's full of compassion. He's full of grace. The second one is mercy, okay? I'm driving to uh, church today, and I've got K-Bright on, and Lance is preaching on AM 740. And what's he preaching about? Mercy. And his points were that you have to experience mercy. So if you have Jesus Christ in your heart, you've experienced mercy. And then his second point was then you extend mercy as a Christian. And number three, you exemplify mercy in your life. And the last one is you explain mercy. So experience, extend, exemplify, explain mercy was Lance's point on mercy in today's message on Cade Bright. It reminds me of the, the, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. I won't read it, but I'll just simplify it. Remember the guy? He owes a debt of 10,000 talents. How much is that? Impossible to pay back, right? So the master comes and out of pity forgives him, right? But that guy goes and finds a man who owes him like 100 bucks, 100 denarii, maybe two months' salary, maybe three months' salary. So unsurable animal debt, just a little bit. And he doesn't forgive the guy of 100. Remember that story? Well, if you have Jesus Christ in your heart, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. And I've met people who have been now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, still holding bitterness, still holding grudges. You have to be full of grace and mercy. You have to forgive. Number three is righteous. We talked about this in the, in the, the godly effect. Uh, the righteous person lives a holy life. It's the life of sanctification. You grow in Christ in an ever-increasing likeness of Jesus. You try to be perfect. It doesn't mean you are perfect. You will fail, but you, you will ask God to forgive your sins. So here's three characteristics that you can mull over, that you can meditate upon. Grace, mercy, and righteousness. Do I exemplify these characteristics? Do I have these characteristics? If there's a problem, you need to meditate upon that. You need to go to God, ask forgiveness, and try to try to live this life. Let's move on to number five, the generous effect. And I have two verses here. Verse 5 says, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. In verse 9, kind of the same theme, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, His horn is exalted in honor. The godly man is unselfish. He's willing to help others with his money. 
He doesn't give God the leftovers. He tries to give God the first fruits, Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. He uses his money for God's kingdom and God's glory. He's concerned about the welfare of others, people that are poor, people that are sick. And, you know, when you go through the Bible, there are more verses about money over two... I have a, I have a PDF file. There's like over 2,500 verses in the Bible about money. Half the parables of Jesus deal with money. So there are more verses in the Bible about money than almost any other topic. And you could sum them all up in one verse. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what the godly man does. So here are the ideas. If you're wealthy, you're gonna, you're gonna, the Jew would need to lend without interest. Now, we don't really do that today. But for us, it would be your business affairs are honest, they're ethical, and you love to help people who need help. This verse here, uh, verse, verse 9, uh, Psalms 112, verse 9, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9, as it is written, where is it written? Psalm 112, 9. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So you got Psalms 112, 9, 2 Corinthians 9, 9, Old Testament, New Testament, that if we have ample money, God has blessed us, we should distribute freely, we should help the poor, and that help a righteousness, if a righteous man who lives right with God will do that as long as he's here on earth. Notice, though, in 2 Corinthians 9, 9, Paul does not quote the last sentence in Psalms 112, verse 9, his horn is exalted in honor. What does that mean, his horn? It just means that there should be prosperity. There should be victory for the godly man, okay? Again, it's not a promise that you'll be rich, but it should be a promise, Matthew 6, that God will provide food, clothing, and shelter uh, for the godly man. Let's look at the last and the sixth characteristic, the grounded effect. Verse 6, 7, and 8. It says, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So it talks twice about the heart, twice about not being afraid. Turn with me to Psalms 115. We've actually read three Psalms tonight, and we'll read a fourth. Can't cover them all in detail. But Psalms 15... Is called the Ten Commandments Psalm. Not the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20, but there are Ten Commandments in Psalms 15. Okay? I think Tom Mason preached this last year. But let's read Psalms, Psalms uh, 15. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. I'll stop there. So commandment one is in verse two, his walk is blameless, or he's sincere. Number two, it says that he does what is right. He's righteous. That's that's the Second one. Number three, he speaks the truth. He's an honest man. So he's sincere, he's righteous, and he's honest. Number four, he doesn't speak slander. That's in verse three. Number five, he does his neighbor no wrong. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't do wrong. And number six, he is without reproach. 
I'm sorry, that's in verse 3, yeah. And then it says um, um, in verse 4, uh, in whose eyes is a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He can distinguish between good and evil. That's the sixth commandment. Uh, number, um, that was the seventh, I'm sorry. Number eight, uh, he, he, he keeps his oath. Number eight, he keeps his oath. He who swears to his own hurt does not change. Who does not put out money at interest. He doesn't charge interest when he loans. That's number nine. And number 10, he doesn't take bribes. So there's like 10 commandments in Psalms 15. But look at the last verse, because this is what ties into Psalm 112. After those 10 commandments, it says, He who does these things, what? Shall never be moved. And what does Psalm 112, verse 6 say? For the righteous will never be moved. He's firm. He's steady. He, he doesn't worry about disaster and trouble and things that are going on. So, so Psalms 15 ends with, He who does these things will not be moved. And here it, it says that the godly man will not be moved. You know, when you go through the Psalms that we've studied, uh, we study Psalms 3, right? Psalms 3, verse 1 to 3 says that, uh, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So there's a theme about God protects us. We don't need to be afraid. We looked at Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he has my right hand. I will not be shaken. So it talks about, you know, bad things come, but the godly man's not going to be shaken. We looked at Psalms 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So you trust in God even though bad things come. Psalms 29 says, verse 11, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless you with peace. So it's God who gives us the strength to stand strong, stand firm. Psalms 32 says, you are a hiding place for me. He protects us. It says, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We looked at Psalms 40. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. It's God who delivers us. O Lord, make haste to help me. I could go on and on and on and on. But what I wanted to just to remind you, this is why I want you to read Psalms. I want you to read one Psalm a day. Okay, now when you get to Psalms 119, <laughs> maybe read eight verses and it'll take 22 days to get through Psalms 119 because it has 176 verses. But if you will read, you're going to see this theme again about don't be shaken, be firm, be strong. Now, David has many Psalms, maybe 40, 50 about his troubles. So it doesn't mean you're going to have a perfect life. You're not. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to have heartache. You're going to have cancers. You're going to have trouble. But the godly man is firm. The godly man is strong. Okay? Uh, Psalms 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So that psalm asks two rhetorical questions, and the answer is no one. I should not fear anyone. Um, uh, Job, Job is our example. Remember Job? I won't, you know, run out of time, but Job had four catastrophes, right? Bam, 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 bam. Everything's gone, including his children, his camels, his donkeys, everything. And what does he do? Verse 20 and 22 says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and what did he do? Worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, Job had a little trouble. Job, down the preceding chapters, wanted a trial with God. But Job, what an example he is. So the godly man is not going to be shaken. So 
just want to throw out, please continue to pray for the Afghan Christians. Okay, they may be strong now. Okay, they need to be strong now because probably soon, if not already, the Taliban will go to village after village and they will round up the village. And a lot of these people apparently have identity cards which say they're Christians. But what they will do is they will tell those Christians, if you convert to Islam, fine. And a lot of them will. But those that refuse will probably be killed. Okay, so let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They need to be steady. They need to be firm, not compromise. Let's go to the last verse. Last verse, verse 10. And this is interesting, isn't it? We don't know who wrote this psalm, but we know it's not by David. Because if David wrote this psalm, he would end it with a praise, right? David always has a problem. David always ends with a praise about God. There's no praise here. It ends talking about the wicked man. Quite interesting. So you have a contrast here about the wicked man. And it says three things about this wicked man. So uh, you have eight verses about the characteristics or consequences of a godly man and the blessings that godly man receives. So whoever wrote this psalm wants to contrast uh, the godly man, verses 2 to 9, with the, wic- the wicked man in verse 10. Okay? The godly man is blessed. The wicked man is going to end in misery. First, he says, the wicked man sees it and is angry. What does the wicked man see? He sees the godly man. He sees a Christian who has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he can't stand that person. I don't know if you've been on social media. Not not a great place to be, but if you're a Christian on there and try to talk to somebody about Christ or God or anything moral or or rebuke somebody for sin, they will just pour out hate like you've never seen it. That's because they don't have the, the fruits of the Spirit They have the fruits of sin, and in Galatians 5.20, it says the wicked man is full of anger and strife and jealousy. So the wicked man sees the godly man. You know, they see churches. They see uh, godly people. Any any sports athlete, any politician who even quotes Christ or says anything about God, they will be hated. They'll be vented upon. The second thing he says is the wicked man gnashes his teeth and melts away. Melts away means he literally wastes away. He wastes away. Uh, he's exp- the, the wicked man expresses anger. And this, uh, remember the religious leaders when Stephen is, is, is preaching at them in Acts 7? It's like 60-something verses. And at the end of it, it says that the, the people were weeping and gnashing their teeth, and they actually killed Stephen, right? Matthew 8, 12, Jesus tells us there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where? In hell. Because when they're, when they're evil now and they go to hell, they don't change. You know, if they're a horrible person now, they're a horrible person in hell. You don't change. There's no repentance in hell. So the, the, the wicked characteristics they have, they'll keep. And they're going to be weeping and gnashing in teeth, God says. Uh, so, you know, there, there are psalms like we mentioned, Psalms 37. Psalm 73 I taught last year. Lots of verses about how come the wicked prosper? How come they have the great life? Job would get in this complaint in Job. They have riches. I, I'm the one with the cancers. I'm the one with the loss of job. They have it. They have it. Well, it looks that way, but literally they, they are angry. They're going to be gnashing their teeth, and they, they've wasted their life. They could have had a blessed life, but they have a cursed life. And that's the third thing. It says the desire, the last word, the last sentence of Psalm 112, the desire of the wicked will perish. So uh, notice there the word perish. There's another psalm that ends with perish. Anybody know what psalm that is? 
Psalms 1, the very first one. Psalms 1, the first word in Psalms 1 is what? Blessed. That's the path of a godly man. And the last word in Psalms 1, verse 6, perish. So Psalms 1, the wicked man perishes. It's reiterated here, Psalms 1:12, the wicked will perish. His plans may, they come to nothing. Maybe he had a Maserati and riches and the great life. You see these uh, Hollywood actors and actresses, right? They're so pretty, yet you find out later just how miserable they are. The, the alcohol, the drug abuse, the, the, the just, they're not happy. They're just putting on a front. But they will perish. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's interesting that Psalms 1 and Psalms 112 end with the word perish. That's the wicked man. Not the godly man. I trust everybody today here has Jesus Christ in their heart and not see me afterwards or see Tom Mason. So what do we learn tonight? Well, the psalm begs the reader to have wisdom. What's the center of my life? Am I a kind of person that praises the Lord? We talked a lot about this this, this summer. Am I a person that fears the Lord? Am I a person that delights in the Word of God? We talked about meditation a little bit on Sunday. We talked a lot about meditation last week. You know, people don't meditate on God's Word because they don't memorize God's Word. They don't memorize God's words because they don't study God's Word. They don't study God's Word because they don't read God's Word. They usually just come to Sunday and get a little bit on Sunday. But we need to be doing all five of those and delighting in God's Word. Do I desire to study and live by the Scriptures? You know, do I have a high view of God? So if I have a high view of God, Psalms 111, then it's going to be manifested in a godly life, the characteristics in Psalm 112. It kind of ties here with Sunday's message. Sunday's message, I said, knowing God and being known by God. If we truly know God and we realize that God knows everything about us, we would strive to be like him. Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Paul said, we covered this verse last week in 2 Corinthians 3.8. This is the goal for the Christian, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We are being transformed. We're being sanctified. And what's it say? Into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So do you delight in the Word of God? It should cause you to praise the Lord. It should cause you to feed the Lord. So I just want to end tonight, in case I don't get it next week, try to read one psalm a day. There are 150 psalms, so that's the longest book in the Bible, of course. There are 2,461 verses, so almost 8% of your entire Bible is the book of Psalms. The middle chapter of the Bible is Psalms 117. The shortest chapter in the Bible is Psalms 117. And of course, you know the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalms 119. And people say, well, they're too long. Well, there's only 13, 13 of the 150 psalms are over 30 verses. So how long does it take to read a psalm of 30 verses? Just a couple minutes, right? And there are only four psalms that are over 50 verses. So most of the psalms are not long. In fact, there are 55 psalms, like Psalms 111 and 112, that have 10 verses or less. If you read one psalm a day in two years, you will have read it five times. And you will learn so much. And what will you learn? Well, you'll learn to praise the Lord. You'll learn to fear the Lord. And you'll learn to delight in the word of God. And then, Lord willing, you will manifest these six characteristics of Psalm 112.